welcome to Deep North. Today we'll be listening to staff writer Eric Pomeranke. He'll be reading his article, Velvet Terrorism, um, based on the recent exhibition of founding member of Pussy Riot, Maria Aleokina. And uh, afterwards, we'll be discussing the article. Visiting the exhibition, Velvet Terrorism, Pussy Riots Russia, you enter a dark room. You are pleasantly greeted by a man sitting at a fold-up table spread with pamphlets and copies of Maria Alyukina's 2017 prison memoir, Riot Days. To your right, a video of a woman in a baggy black dress fills one wall, blonde hair curling messily out from underneath a red balaclava. Standing above a portrait of President Vladimir Putin, she carefully lifts her dress and pisses all over him. This is the first ever museum exhibition of Pussy Riot's work, and it's being held at Reykjavik's Marshall House. Maria Alyokhina has been through much to be here. When, on February 24, 2022, President Vladimir Putin announced the beginning of a special military operation in Ukraine, Maria, a founding member of Pussy Riot, watched the announcement from a detention center on the outskirts of Moscow. Less than a year later, she and fellow members of the feminist punk band and activist group have created a visual omnibus of their political actions, a comprehensive critique of Putin's Russia in Reykjavik. Pussy Riot is, in theory, a punk band, but their best-known works are acts of political protest and performance art. They first came to prominence in 2012 when they performed Punk Prayer, a frantic 60-second sonic protest at the altar of the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow, in which Maria and her companions exhorted the Virgin Mary to become a feminist. Indeed, the exhibition's title, Velvet Terrorism, comes from Patriarch Kirill of Moscow's description of the protest. Several of the band's members, including Maria, also known as Masha, served time in Siberian penal colonies for the performance. The charges? Hooliganism and, quote, religious hatred. I was concerned that all of this visual material might die in the exhibit, Masha tells me. We didn't want frames on anything, she says. It's never been easy to incorporate the provocative, rebellious spirit of performance art into the sometimes musty confines of art museums. In lieu of frames, glitter and brightly colored tape decorate the walls evoking, perhaps, a teenage girl's poster collage. Nothing here is permanent, the entire exhibition ready to be torn down about as quickly as it was put up. Among the many images and videos of their diverse political actions, one stands out. Two women, Nadia Tolokonokova and Maria Alyokhina, are dressed in blue and white seraphans, a traditional Russian women's costume, accessorized with fishnet stockings and big black boots. The scene resembles idyllic depictions of maypole dances, except the streamers are replaced with yellow plastic police tape, and the two women are tying up a faceless, masked policeman. Nadia stares at the camera. After politely pacing among many such images, visitors are finally challenged by a prison guard. To get through to the end of the exhibit, you must surrender your shoelaces, belts, phones, and keys and place them all in a gray plastic tray, 
like at the airport. Your personal belongings disappear through a slot in the wall. It's unclear where they've gone. You are ushered into a small room, shuffling to not trip over your now loose shoes. In front of you, a closed door. Above, an intercom broadcasting in Russian. On either side, institutionally gray-green walls. It doesn't help that the door is rather heavy and stiff. It takes some time to realize that freedom is only a quick, violent push away. Hanging on the opposite side of the door is a bright green uniform, complete with an insulated backpack, the kind used by online food ordering and delivery services. This is the uniform that Masha used to escape from Russia in April 2022. We transported the uniform all the way from Moscow, Masha says. It took two months and got here just two weeks before the start of the exhibition. We never really know what's going to happen to us, so it's better for it to be here. Police surveillance is a daily reality for her and her friends. You can always tell Kremlin agents from their bad taste in footwear, she says. And since 2021, Masha has been picked up by the authorities for various trumped-up charges, including violating COVID-19 quarantine. For the past two years, she has been under intermittent house arrest, but the decision to flee only came when the authorities announced that she was to serve the rest of her sentence in a penal colony. Having once served out a sentence in Siberia, she had no desire to return. Sometimes we need to go out on an errand or whatever, so I came up with this idea to buy the uniform, Masha explains. The political police, you know, are quite stupid. The lower-level guys will be tasked with just monitoring you entering and exiting your home, and they often don't really notice much else. With the help of the delivery uniform and Icelandic artist Ragnar Kjartansson, Masha was able to make it to the Belarusian border, and ultimately to Iceland via Lithuania. Ragnar's exact involvement is left unstated, one of many cul-de-sacs in our conversation for the protection and anonymity of her friends. Despite its dramatic nature, Masha is quite nonchalant about her disguised escape. The most difficult thing, she tells me, is making the decision. Once you've made your decision, the rest is just practical. This decisiveness has defined Masha's life from an early age. I was quite a problematic child, Masha says. This does not come as a surprise. I changed schools a lot. I couldn't get along with my teachers. The way they teach in Russia, it's still Soviet-era patriotism. It was shortly after completing secondary school that Masha truly became politically conscious. And it wasn't contact with dissident students in Moscow or radical reading groups but the destruction of a beloved forest that led to the leap of faith. I read that the state was going to clear Utrish Nature Reserve for an oligarch's mansion, she explains. Located on the Abrao Peninsula along the Black Sea, only a narrow strait separates Utrish from Crimea, which at that time was still Ukrainian. Utrish Nature Reserve is also the only part of Russia to have a Mediterranean climate, a little slice of paradise. It's a very unique place that should be protected, Masha says. I hitchhiked there after finishing school. At the time, I didn't really know anything about activism. I wrote to some organizations like Greenpeace and WWF and asked what I could do. And then I just picked up my backpack and went. 
She started to collect signatures to save the nature reserve from development. And when she returned to Moscow, she wrote again to Greenpeace and WWF, asking what more she could do. From there, things started to snowball. She organized small demonstrations, filmed political actions, and collaborated with others. It was also during this time, as a student at Moscow State University, that Masha met Nadia. Together, they would become two of Pussy Riot's founding members. Masha's problems with authority continued at university. I was studying literature, and all of my professors were writers and poets. They knew what was going on. Why were they not in the streets, she says. While some in the ivory tower agonize over the relationship between art and political commitment, for Pussy Riot's project, the interconnectedness of the two is quite simply axiomatic. Art and activism at the same time. For Masha, punk isn't a genre of music. It's a way of life, she says. And this way of life isn't merely an aesthetic identity. It has to do with asking the authorities difficult questions, being willing to come into real confrontation with a state. This is something that Masha is deeply familiar with, having spent a total of two years of her life in prison, and about the same amount of time under house arrest. I think art has a responsibility to change the norm, she says. So many things that are normal now, that we take for granted, are still very new. It was totally impossible to imagine gay pride within some people's lifetimes. You could end up in a mental hospital. Some people had to sacrifice themselves to change the norm. I think that art is basically asking the question, do we want to live like this or not? Since those early days of activism, Masha and her companions have toured and lectured throughout the world led major demonstrations, and, of course, made themselves enemy number one in Putin's Russia. A common motif in Pussy Riot's visual vocabulary is the moment of arrest. This moment, the frequent conclusion to many of their actions, could be seen as an integral part of the performance, the standing ovation to a virtuoso protest. In one such image from a demonstration of the 2014 Sochi Olympics, Cossacks in fur-lined ushankas lash Masha and her companions with heavy horsewhips. There is a curious detachment, as if neither party particularly wants to be here. The action takes place in the passive voice. There's whipping being done. Masha and her friends stand there stoically disassociated from the blows, while the Cossacks half bored, wait for 5 p.m. to roll around, like the rest of us. In other images, Masha's face is illuminated by a saintly calm. Looking at the camera as a hulking armed guard takes her away, she resembles nothing so much as the Pieta. Of course, it's stupid to resist these large men with guns, Masha says. The saintly appearance is, in a very practical sense, a signal to these violent men that she's no longer resisting. But her calm passivity in these images also casts absurdity on the proceedings, men in special forces gear surrounding the diminutive Masha. Even these men are just working a job, she says. There are definitely some true sadists who enjoy the full extent of their power, but they're not the majority. The majority are tired. They want to go home to their wife and kids. And, just like everybody else, they're not being paid enough for what they do. 
In some of these images, however, the attentive viewer might catch something else, the shadow of a smile. Arrests, after all, can be fun. And Masha's defiance extends well beyond the moment of her arrest. The penal colonies, often referred to as the, quote, zone, are still the same in the Soviet Union, Masha says. Prisoners live on strictly regimented schedules, sewing military uniforms for slave wages. During her time in the penal colony, where she was subjected to a total of five months of solitary confinement, Masha maintained contact with human rights observers. Through learning her rights and hunger striking, she even successfully mounted a campaign to reform conditions from the inside. I started to defend myself, Masha remembers. I asked for a copy of the prison regulations. Many don't know this, but they have to give you the regulations if you ask for them. I started to read the regulations, and I found out that it was them breaking the law, not me. But it wasn't easy. During all of this, guards would sometimes break script, asking her why she didn't just make life easy for herself. Why she always had to take the hard way. But as Masha tells me, resistance is always a choice, and there are always new moments for resistance. It's not just in the prisons, it's in everyday life. I knew that if I submitted in prison, even when I regained my freedom, I wouldn't be free. Over the last year, pedestrians in downtown Reykjavik may have noticed some new graffiti in several locations. Over a field of blue, an arrow points east. War, 3,963 kilometers. Beside the arrow, a black bomb crashes through a house. An island on the edge of the Arctic Circle, Iceland has always been on the periphery of world history. But... It is Iceland's marginality that has often thrust it into the center of things as well. Its mid-Atlantic disposition made it an important shipping lane during the Second World War. It was likewise considered a sufficiently central, yet neutral, location for the famous nuclear disarmament talks between Reagan and Gorbachev in 1986. Iceland's peculiar position has also made it home to high-profile asylum seekers and political refugees over the years. Most famously, the controversial chess grandmaster Bobby Fischer, who called Iceland his home from 2005 until his death in 2008. It makes sense, then, that Pussy Riot's first-ever exhibition took place at the Marshall House. The house, built in the post-war years of development under the Marshall Plan, was originally a fishmeal factory. The Marshall Plan's goal was to develop post-war Europe, especially Germany, to keep it within the American sphere of influence. Today, the Marshall House is home to Klingelbung, I-8 Gallery, and several other spaces for contemporary art. Iceland, so far away from it all at first glance, is not so insular after all. As Masha says, war is always closer than it looks. Well, thank you for that, Eric. Thank you. Um, so to begin with, why this piece and why now? Well, so, uh, obviously with the timing, um, you know, uh, the exhibit began, I believe last winter in, uh, November, uh, and it ran through, uh, February, beginning of March. Uh, so, you know, I mean, really just kind of going to the exhibit, uh, 
you know, like it was really striking and I was just like really thinking about it, uh, for like days afterwards. Um, you know, that's kind of one of the things that I was maybe trying to achieve with this piece is also kind of just walking through the exhibit, kind of giving you that feeling. I mean, I think that we've all kind of, um, you know, I mean, sometimes, uh, art in its attempt to constantly provoke, uh, also, also empties itself out because we sometimes, um, you know, have been provoked so much that nothing really surprises us anymore. And, you know, this exhibit in particular really did just stay with me. And I really felt like it was something that I had to write about, um, after having seen it. Yeah, there's one moment um, when you're taking the reader through the exhibit in particular that uh, stuck out to me, and that's when you enter the, I guess, faux prison cell and you remove your personal belongings and sort of hand them over through this slot in the wall. What was that like? It was actually kind of, you know, I don't know if the word's funny, uh, but I went to the exhibition with my wife and we both kind of, you know, had our own personal experiences of it. Like we weren't like going through it together. And, you know, like afterwards, uh, I was kind of talking to her like about what it was like to be in that room. And, <laughs> you know, like, like, like it took her like 10 minutes to find out that you could like open the door and she really just like felt trapped and like kind of genuinely panicked. And, you know, I wasn't in that room for quite as long, but, you know, it was like a really kind of genuinely oppressive atmosphere. I mean, you're kind of, you know, stripped of all of these belongings that you carry with you in your everyday that kind of ground you, you know, I mean, I think that like, uh, like a reflex that a lot of us have, like as we walk out the door, you know, it's like phone keys, wallet, phone keys, wallet. Uh, we kind of, you know, like th this makes us prepared for the world and it kind of makes us ready to meet challenges in some way. It's like, we have our credit card in case something comes up, we have our keys to come back home. And then like these really basic things are taken away from us. Um, like your shoelaces are taken away. So, I mean, like it's literally just harder to kind of navigate the world. And so you're put into this position of, you know, like real vulnerability. And it's a position that a lot of us don't really feel very often. Um, and, you know, it's, it really kind of jolts you out of your kind of like everyday consciousness to like all of a sudden kind of be put into the position of a prisoner. And you kind of realize that like, you know, this is a state that like other people are inhabiting right now at this moment and other places around the world. And, you know, I mean, I guess this stuff is kind of hard to talk about because, um, you know, I mean, it's like, you don't want to trivialize anything through a comparison. And yet, you know, I think that, um, an experience that a lot of people talk about, like when they have uh, either gone to a Holocaust museum or, you know, have actually visited a concentration camp like at Auschwitz, uh, like, like, like one of the things that people inevitably um, kind of identify the most deeply with are shoes uh, and like clothes, uh, like, like a lot of Holocaust museums. And like, if you go to, for instance, Auschwitz, uh, you know, like there will be these, uh, you know, monuments uh, with like the victim's clothes or shoes. And, you know, like we recognize ourselves in these things, like there's something really personal about our clothes. Um, and so, you know, like even though it's like a really small thing, like the shoelaces, um, I feel like there's some sort of resonance there, like kind of 
all of a sudden we're in their shoes, uh, like like these people who are kind of really being put through a camp system, uh, you know, because to be clear, I mean, Russia still has penal colonies. Like they, they, they still have a gulag system, which is uh, completely intact from the Soviet era. And, you know, if you commit certain crimes, especially political ones, like you will be sent to Siberia uh, and you will work in a camp uh, that is completely cut off from the outside world. Um, and, you know, obviously this is not a concentration camp, um, but this kind of total regimentation of life and kind of, you know, just this like total like nakedness and vulnerability um, is something that, you know, I felt pretty deeply uh, actually going to the exhibit. So, yeah. And you mentioned in the piece that Masha spent, was it two years in Siberia in a penal colony? Yes. And notably five of those uh, months uh, were in complete solitary confinement. Um, during her time there, uh, she was in some contact with human rights observers. And, you know, one of the most heroic things I think about her story is that, you know, she, you know, basically became her own advocate. She started, um, reading the penal code for herself. She started kind of becoming her own lawyer. Uh, she would kind of argue with the guards about her rights. Um, and there are actually some reforms that she was actually able to push through in her time at the penal colony, which I mean, to me is just nothing short of heroic because, you know, like you're put into this position where you are totally disenfranchised. You are kind of as vulnerable as possible, you have really nothing except like your skin and your mind. Um, and just by kind of learning this code, like this text, you're able to kind of turn it against your jailers. And, you know, I mean, like, like to me, that's just like, there's something kind of miraculous about that. Uh, and, you know, of course this is really difficult. Uh, like, like a lot of this was actually carried through with hunger, hunger striking. Um, and, uh, if I remember correctly, at the end of her prison term, uh, shortly after she left uh, the penal colony, um, the like like overseer, like like the warden, uh, was actually fired uh, because there was so much uh, publicity and press uh, around her confinement there. Um, and you know, I mean, that's also maybe something kind of interesting uh, is that I think that when we think of Putin's Russia, we think of a completely lawless dictatorship. Um, and yet there is this like funny thing about how even a dictatorship like needs the legitimacy of the law. And, you know, it's like, I think that it's easy to think that in a penal colony like this, that somehow like the law is totally suspended and, you know, you kind of petition a guard, uh, for your rights or something. And, you know, they basically just say, you know, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, you're a prisoner. We can do whatever uh, we want. And yet there's this funny thing that happens where, you know, for one reason or another, like whether it's just for appearances, whether the average guard actually does have something like respect for the rule of law, there's something just about knowing the law and being able to kind of use it to your advantage as well that, you know, actually works. And I think that that's really interesting because, you know, I think that, yeah, maybe when we think about a state like Russia, we might just be tempted to think of it as totally 
lawless somehow. And yet there's something still important there about knowing your rights. Yeah. Another striking image from the piece is uh, Masha's encounter with the <clears throat> Cossacks who are wielding horse whips. Yes. And um, it's, it strikes you as she seems like a very sort of thoughtful systems orientated person in that she's, you know, despite being, I mean, obviously in grave danger from these heavy horse whips and these sort of very powerful men, I imagine that she's able to sort of walk in their shoes and, you know, identify, well, these people are doing their jobs. They're tired they just want to go home. I mean, which isn't necessarily sort of the thought process that you would expect from someone suffering this kind of violence. What is that? Um, I mean, I just wondered your thoughts on that. Did that strike you as? Yeah. Um, that was one of the most interesting images from the exhibition. And I am still kind of struggling to articulate totally like why that was so interesting to me. So I don't know if I'm going to kind of totally capture this. Um, but you know, I think that um, in a in an authoritarian system, there is this kind of um, absurdity uh, behind the law, you know, and like like this is a kind of thing that you know, for instance, Kafka like captured really well is uh, the like contradictions and ironies of you know both bureaucracies and also like totalitarian systems, and I think that like there is this way in which. Um, Masha and her peers kind of recognize this emptiness at the heart of the system. And, you know, like they have to be the ones to step into it. And yet there's a way in which it could be anybody. And I think that's one of the most interesting, what like one of the most interesting things about this image is that, you almost expect, I mean, well, not almost, I mean, like, like you do expect this to be like a really emotionally charged situation. I mean, like there are policemen basically whipping these young women, um, you know, it, it, it's extremely violent. Um, and yet there is this way in which they've just kind of um, emptied themselves out and kind of just allowed the law to play itself out. Um, and in this way, kind of show everyone like the absurdity of it all. Um, I don't really know if that's like totally capturing it, but like those are just some of the things that were kind of running through my mind when I saw that because, you know, um, yeah, I mean, like it's just. Uh, I, I, I think I catch a drift and I think um, what I'm hearing is sort of echoes of Hannah Arendt and yes. the trials of Eichmann where, <clears throat> you know, during the trials, most everyone seemed to be quite convinced of Eichmann's sort of evil, while Hannah Arendt, I think, rightly sort of saw him as a kind of empty vessel, as a very thoughtless man who employed these cliches, who as a result of his thoughtlessness was somehow, you know, the, the system could make of him a, a kind of marionette. And I think that's a much sort of deeper, humane analysis of what's going on. Yeah. And I think that's precisely... I mean, that's my reading on what's going on there with uh, the Cossacks and the horse whips. So, um, no, yeah, I mean, definitely Hannah Arendt's banality of evil is like a really important concept for Masha, and that came up in our conversation. And um, 
Yeah, I, I, I have one sort of brief anecdote on that point. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I remember when I was younger and I, um, you know, I, I was sort of frequenting the, the nightclubs of downtown Reykjavik. <laughs> there was a period of, in my life when uh, I, I think I was, you know, you, you're young and you're stupid and you're under the influence of alcohol and maybe you're buying into a certain kind of, I don't know, masculine ethos or something that that you get into sort of precarious situations and you you act stupidly. Um, I was involved in maybe a few scuffles or bar fights at the time. And I just remember like how transformative it was like maybe 10 years after, you know, I stopped frequenting the nightclubs and I, I think I had found some kind of moral compass and had some kind of moral epiphany with, with regard to how vulnerable human beings are against circumstances. Like the way she describes the Cossacks is like, well, these are people doing their job and they're tired and, you, you, you know, and I remember getting into a situation that was quite fraught and, and being able to sort of absolutely just, you know, I don't know, proceed with great calmness and peace of mind and recognizing that, you know, what, what was going on, there was like a, it was almost a, a huge fight breaking up. It was like, well, you could approach it with, with a completely different perspective in such a way that you could almost withdraw from what was going on and just, I don't know. I think, I think there's some, some, um, connection between those two. I mean, that's what's coming up for me. Yeah. It's I like, mean, like definitely, uh, I think the, like, like the big idea there is that like evil isn't this thing that like, you know, lives inside individuals. It's something that kind of arises at like a higher level and that higher level has to do with structures. And, you know, I mean, society creates different types of people. And, you know, I mean, in uh, a parallel history, uh, Eichmann uh, would have just been like a dentist, right? right. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, just, just, just somebody who kind of quietly goes about their life, uh, you know, and, you know, some sort of, some sort of educated bureaucrat of some sort. Um, but, you know, the historical conditions of Weimar Germany and the Third Reich produced Eichmann. Um, and, you know, like this is definitely something that, is very much on pussy rights mind. And, you know, like when they talk about art having a kind of moral imperative to break the norm, like it, you know, it's also about creating a different type of person. I mean, like that, like that is ultimately like the potential of art, right? I mean, it's to kind of break through the structures that we have right now and kind of look towards something else and, you know, maybe produce a different kind of subjectivity. And, you know, I mean, I guess also just like while we're on the topic of Hannah Arendt, you know, I mean, I just have to say like something that I think was really interesting in uh, having the privilege to sit down and talk with Masha. Um, you know, I mean, I think that uh, in the West, um, in the current cultural moment, I think that there is uh, sometimes like a very ready politicization of like the classics, for instance. Um, and I think that uh for many people, I think that like the classics are largely a source of conservative values uh, and not kind of uh, progressive values. Um, and, you know, something that really struck me, though, is that like Masha is like really steeped in the classics, actually. I mean, like when like when she sat down to write her prison memoir, I mean, like she's really channeling 19th century Russian literature. 
And, you know, like there's something really just awesome and beautiful about that to me. Uh, you know, I mean, like not to romanticize it because I mean like her time in a penal colony was just genuinely dreadful. Um, and yet like also in some sense, being a prisoner is also being an ideal reader. Uh, like she did still have access to books and she used that time to just read, read, read. And, you know, I thought that it was just like really amazing that, uh, like throughout all of this, like she still just like has this like spark and this just kind of like passion for reading, uh, which, you know, I mean, quite frankly, in some sense, I envy, uh, yeah. yeah. It was like, um, <laughs> a few years after Mandela was released from prison on Robin Island, he was asked about, um, he was asked about his experience and he said in an interview, well, actually, sometimes I miss the books, which I thought was a beautiful sentiment. Um, well, I think uh, I think that was uh, an, an excellent piece. Thank you for sharing it with us, Eric, and thanks for the conversation. Thank you, Ragnar. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication in Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening please consider subscribing to Ice and Review at our website.